This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Book of Joe Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey there, welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast with Tom Berducci, Joe Madden, and maybe we should call it the Cup of Joe broadcast after a long game last night. On to Houston, the Astros with a three games to two lead heading into a possible clincher in game six. How you doing this morning, Joe? I am well, brother. How about yourself? You're the one that was out late last night. I fell asleep. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to start with a good story. And one of the stories it reminds me of is in our book, The Book of Joe, you tell some great stories about the importance sometimes of getting a starting pitcher a complete game and how that might slingshot his career forward to know that you can get something done that maybe you haven't done before to push yourself a little bit and be rewarded by kind of setting a new boundary for yourself and, and keep searching higher. And I know, Joe, you're going to tell some stories about that. But I thought about that last night with Justin Verlander. It wasn't a complete game, but he's got something next to his name in the box score today that is very meaningful. It's the letter W. Justin Verlander, on his ninth try, got his first World Series win. And let me tell you how big of a deal that was, folks. Justin Verlander, by the way, has been playing Major League Baseball since before Joe Madden got his first full-time managing gig. That's a while, folks. And he gets his first World Series win. And his teammates understand how important that is, not just to them, but especially to him. They tossed him in a laundry cart, pushed him into the shower room, and gave him the rookie shower, which is basically taking anything you can get your hands on in the clubhouse water, beer, mustard, ketchup, whatever, and pouring it on top of 39-year-old Justin Verlander. And I can tell you, he was still dripping when I saw him. I'm not sure I've ever seen Justin Verlander more happy, at least outwardly in front of everybody. I'm sure he's had great moments. He's married. He's got a kid. But I'm talking on a baseball field, a baseball kind of happiness. 
Justin has done everything you could even dream of doing in a major league career with one exception. The last unchecked box was a W next to his name from a World Series game. And he got it, and everybody in that clubhouse knew it. And Dusty Baker, the manager, told me after the game, don't ever think a win is not important to a pitcher because it is important to them. And if it's important to the pitchers, it's important to us. And, Joe, that's why it brought me back to what you've done in the past with pushing a pitcher, not in harm's way, but stretching their boundaries to say you can complete a game and then good things will happen. Well, that came to bear last night watching that game. I mean, the fact he only went five innings, but this guy fought, fought, fought because he's been in games, deeper into games in the past in his history, that he's had to fight through difficult moments in maybe the sixth or seventh inning and eventually turns out to be the eighth and the ninth and he walks off the field to a handshake. Uh, it's just a, it's a separator. And the line I've always used is a mind once stretched has a difficult time going back to its original form. Um, we, we are not permitting this to happen anymore. Uh, young pitchers uh, being able to pitch more deeply into games without restrictions. The only restriction should be like an out-of-control number of pitches. I agree with that. You don't want to hurt anybody. And the way that this, it's built these days, of course, uh, you, you're kind of looking for an issue or a problem if you let it go too far. But within certain parameters, when you get a young pitcher to uh, finish the game, walk off the field, he's pitched through some adversity probably in the latter part of the game. He walks off the field and he ca- and he shakes the hand of the catcher and everybody else greets him on the mound or that area. That that's different. That is that that growth moment that you're seeking, and that's the moment that permits him to work through more difficult moments earlier in the game, in other games that may come along down the stretch, and not necessarily the eighth or ninth, but maybe it is the sixth or the seventh. But you have to fight through adversity to become an accomplished major league pitcher as a starter. And I, I like you used the word dripping, and that's what he was yesterday, dripping with that experience yesterday i was watching it and early on it didn't look good and uh, all of a sudden he started to look like he got on top of his breaking ball better and it was uh diving uh better and then the, the fastball to schwerby's trying to elevate but he got it towards the barrel and not inside little things like that but he kept fighting through it you can see the resolve you can see him talking to himself on the mound and all these things are born of being permitted to work through the struggle or to work through adversity because you're not going to learn only through your wonderful, perfect moments. So uh, that's what I saw. And like you mentioned, I, I could give you several, uh, whether it was Hilly Hathaway or uh, Colin Charland or others uh, in the minor leagues. I don't know they never pitched. I think they did pitch briefly in the big leagues. I think um, uh, Hilly did. But the point is, uh, we, uh, Kirk McCaskill, uh, Urbana Lugo, others that I permitted to pitch nine innings in a uh, playoff game against the Metford A's in 1982, right? 82. And they, they got through, and uh, Kirk pitches nine innings, two hits, no walks, 12 punch outs against a team that was 53 and 17 that year. And Urbano Lugo finishes it off in Midland, and, and I think it was six to one, possibly, in a complete game there for him, too. But the point is, you let permit guys like this to do that in the minor leagues, it just it turns them into a different form of an animal, a pitching, starting pitching animal. I'd love to see more of it occur. Because right now we're all accepting the the theory and the belief that these guys can only pitch uh, five or six innings and they can't really get the third time through. But you know why? Because they've never learned how to do it. And they've not been given the opportunity to learn how to do it. And then in, in turn with that, you're going to have better bullpens because of that, because these guys are going to have to be asked to cover less innings. Like right now, maybe not as much of an issue because uh, finite series, shorter series, you don't have to stretch it out. But over the course of a long season, when 
your starters are going five innings. I don't know how these groups do it unless you just have this uh, can full of relief pitchers that you can shuttle between your AAA team and the big leagues. So that's the long answer. The point is, watching Verlander pitch last night, I saw uh, a guy that that knows his uh, craft, understands his craft, and understands himself because he fought. He fought. You talk about the grind, and I love the fact that the, the his teammates recognize that. And and I'm I'm sure Justin felt like a rookie in that in that uh, cart in, in the shower with everything that ensued afterwards. And that's probably a memory he's never going to forget right there of all, of all the wonderful things that he's done. Absolutely. And I would submit, Joe, that maybe the win is the new complete game where we're not going to back to the day where guys are going to complete games very often in the major leagues. Um, but I, I still think and I know a win is a product of run support and some things that are outside the control of the pitcher. It's not the be all and it's not the end all of how well or how poorly a pitcher pitched. I get that. But I love Dusty's point that it is important to these guys. And there is a difference between coming out of that game with a W next to your name or having a 15-win season or, my goodness, a 20-win season. I think we should never lose sight of the value of those things, even if it doesn't make sense you know, empirically in terms of valuing the right, pitcher. Yeah. Right. So maybe having sticking around to get that win is the next complete game. And by the way, is the, of your stories you mentioned – you told tell a great story in the book as well on the major league level with a guy like Jake Arrieta, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, with the Cubs. Yeah. yeah, Jake in that great year that he had the Cy Young year, we're playing in Minnesota early in the season. He was doing okay; he wasn't doing great, wasn't doing horribly. And we're playing Minnesota. It was a kind of a close game into the seventh or eighth inning, uh, and then all of a sudden we scored several runs, and it's eight nothing. Um, he's right around a hundred pitches with two innings left to go, and I'm looking at this, and it's a perfect example. You, easily could take him out of there. Yeah, we're up by eight points. Uh, get him out of there. He doesn't have to waste his bullets right now. Just get him out, put it in the bullpen's hands. But I thought it was really important that he pitched a complete game. And then furthermore, a complete game shutout. That's another That's another animal in and of itself, too. So left him in there. And then afterwards, I heard from different people that, um, you know, why didn't you get him out? You know, the job had been done. You don't want him to waste the pitches. But then I tried to explain exactly what we've been talking about to this point. It really it, it, it flips a switch within uh, a pitcher when he knows he can do that. And I said, like I said, not just a complete game, but a complete game shutout is significant. You're right. You're not going to see. Uh, I don't know that I'm, I'm I'm pounding the table to get more complete games necessarily. Maybe I'm pounding the table to permit pitchers to um, fulfill potentially their greatness by being permitted to pitch more deeply into the games. And I think it's going to benefit the team in the long run when they learn how to do that. But Jake went on that year, and he was—he won that um, one-game playoff versus the, uh, the Pirates in Pittsburgh with another complete game. It wasn't a shutout, I don't think, right? But nevertheless, a complete game, and that's what he learned how to do. And then he just became unbelievable after all that. I'm not just saying that that was – it was a, a sort of a seminal moment because I know I watched him. And after that, man, he just wanted to be out there to the very end. He's, he's got John Lackey in his ear all the time. He's got John Lester in his ear all the time. These guys wanted to do the same thing. Uh, but final point, Tom, you're right. Starting pitchers like the W after their name. There's nothing wrong with that. I, w- I want starting pitchers to want to be that guy. And I also believe from what I'm seeing, there's a lot of the young starting pitchers that aren't necessarily concerned about that. They've been trained to think otherwise. It's part of the training ritual that we're trying to flip the the method with which we think and, and approach this game. And there's, there's some things like I, I could agree with and I like, and there's some that I don't like, and this is one of them. 
Yeah, it reminds me of the old line from Kurt Schilling. He once told me, pitchers are like Labrador retrievers. They'll do what you train them to do. And I think you're right. I think a lot of these guys come up trained to believe that, hey, I did my job just to manage the game. There were a couple of points in this game, and I thought it was, by the way, game five, a real interesting, tight, strategic game. A couple of smaller points in this game that I can't wait to talk to Joe about. Stick around. We'll be right back with the Book of Joe podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Book of Joe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Book of Joe. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I mentioned some smaller points in the game, and I wanted to talk to Joe about this, what his managerial eye thought when he saw this. I can't remember the last time I saw the infield in for the second batter of a game, but we saw it in game five with Jose Altuve at third base, had a second, had a double, went and advanced to third on a bobble by Brandon Marsh in center field. He's on third base, nobody out. Series tied 2-2. Jeremy Payne in the box, and Rob Thompson brings his infield in. And I mean all the way in on the grass. I looked at the scoreboard and said, did I miss something? Is it the eighth inning? Now, it didn't really burn Rob Thompson. Yes, Payne, you got a base hit. But if the infield's back, Altuve's going to score anyway. Um, But it was, listen, I've watched Rob enough this postseason to know he manages aggressively. That was one aggressive move. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I'm not in total disagreement with it. I have my I have my theories on that particular play. The the first point is that run counts as much in the first inning as it does in the eighth or ninth inning. So if we could cut off that run, I've always wanted to do that in game five in um, 
against the Nationals uh, several years ago. We played the infield in, I think, in the third or fourth day. It might have been Harper hitting. And hits the ball hard at Javi. Javi throws to the plate. We get the run rod. Every run counts. So I'm looking at it from that perspective. But my evaluation is always about who's on deck and, and, and what that means to the game situation. For instance, Pena um, is somewhat of a base dealer. And he, he runs a little bit. So I would be less apt in that situation, especially against with uh, Syndergaard pitching because he's so slow to the plate. I don't want this to turn into a big inning. I'll take the out. So that would have been, I think, probably. And you can never know until you're in the dugout in that moment. But I think that would have been the situation. Had we gotten him out uh, under those circumstances, the runner's at, I mean, if I'm playing back and then we get one out, runner at third base, here comes Alvarez. Uh, yeah, I would bring it in against Alvarez and a Bregman. I mean, these guys aren't going to hurt us on the bases after they get out there if a ball just dribbles through. So I've, I've utilized that in my in my process regarding when to play the infield in and how do we evaluate the whole thing. A lot of I look at the guy on deck, uh, and if that guy on deck could really create havoc and turn this into a big inning, especially early, I will back off a bit. But that's it. I every run every run is the same for me. Every run counts. Every every one of them counts. This is a 3-2 game, so obviously had it worked, it would have, been, it would have made a big difference, Baker. You made the point that even with the infield back, the run would have scored. The part of that was it gets into the next part of it is what I just talked about. Pena took too long to run, I thought. I know Alvarez is at hitting. I agree. Um, I agree. And I, I, don't know, I don't know where the second base was. I couldn't see it on TV. Did they have the shift going on? Was that was the hole covered at first base regardless? I didn't know. I couldn't tell that. They did have a shift going on. Now, he, there was a pitch early in the count where he mm-hmm. ran, and Alvaro swung and fouled it off. I think sometimes let the guy take the bag, unless it's a cookie down the middle. Sure. And well, part of that is, uh, is also the fact that normally it's been my um, experience that pitchers like that will be slower earlier in the count and quicker later in the count. As you notice, as the count got deeper, Syndergaard really wanted to pound at first base. Um, there was, you, you could watch his leg. It's so slow to the plate. And, and listen, Noah works really hard to prevent that. And Rio Muto's good at that. Gosh, the play they, they, they made, it was an outstanding play, but I think had he gone earlier in the count, he probably would have beaten it. And then just to keep uh, going on and on about it. But that play reminded me of the time in the, with, against the Red Sox with the Rays and the ALCS when, um, struck out Ortiz and Petroya got thrown on at second base. It's really a momentum changer. Um, I think if that inning had played out a little bit differently and Pena had run sooner, there might have been more runs to be had for the for the uh, Astros there because Noah would have had a totally different mindset had that runner gotten to second with uh, nobody out. And then all of a sudden it's a double play. There's two outs and, and then he turns into Noah again. He turns into Thor. So there's all these subplots that are going on that really aren't evaluated uh, enough for me. Everybody just really focuses on relief pitchers and and when did you bring a relief pitcher in? And was he successful or not? And the game's devolved into that, I think, when it comes to uh, dissecting a post and the post-mortem on it. It's always about that. But there's so many more interesting things. And I'm giving an example of that from yesterday. To me, I was all over the map uh, watching that that whole thing play out because it would have played um, back because of the hitter, because of the fact that he's fast. And once he got to first base, he would have ran sooner and not worried about the hole being open for Alvarez because they're already in the shift and all these little subplots and on and on and on. Yeah, I'm a big believer. And if you're going to run, run early in the count. It, mm-hmm. I, it really bothers me sometimes when the guys wait till 2-2, two, 3-2. Two, two. Well, 3-2 is a little different, but 2-2. Two, two, I mean, a two-strike count, the guy has to swing. I mean, get yourself in the scoring position. Give him a hole at bat to try to get you in. Let's talk about defense, okay? A couple of plays at first base I wanted to get into. 
One was the play that Reese Hoskins really didn't make with Altuve at third. Alvarez hits a kind of a chop ball up the line. Now, left-handed hitter in the box. The third baseman is away from the bag at third, so Altuve is able to get a pretty good lead off third, pretty good secondary lead, terrific base runner. He breaks quickly, so the pressure is on Hoskins to make a play cleanly. He doesn't make the play cleanly. I'm not sure he had Jose Altuve at the plate, but any chance he had of getting him was lost when he bobbled the ball. That's the run that made the difference in the game. So kudos to the Astros. He did have a trail runner behind him, so it's not a super aggressive move to go on contact. It's the right move, but really good base running. Hoskins doesn't handle the ball cleanly. It's not his strength with the glove. On the other side, you've got Trey Mancini playing first base for the first time in about a month. He's thrown into the game because Yuli Gurriel really kind of wrenched his, his right knee when he was caught in a rundown, which was a terrible rundown by the Phillies, by the way. But anyway, he hits a ground ball. Uh, Schwarber hits a ground ball, actually a, a bullet of a ground ball, mm-hmm. that Mancini made an unbelievable play on to save the game at that point. But the reason it was an unbelievable play is a great fundamental play and heads up by the bench coach, Joe Espada. Because with Schwarber in the box, late in the game, you're protecting a lead. You don't want your first baseman to jump off the bag when holding the run around first base and open up any space between you and the line. Espada reminded Mancini of this, and Trey probably knew anyway, but I always love the coach not assuming anything. In the heat of the moment, remind the player. So with Schwarber in the box, and he just pulled the ball foul, by the way, Mancini, as the pitcher goes to the plate, hardly leaves the bag once the pitch is delivered and is in a perfect ready position. And he's in position to make that play. It's the only way he makes that play. The ball was scorched. If he jumps off the bag and starts to cover a little bit more of the right side, that ball's a double. We're still playing today, folks. So couple of plays by the first baseman that, you know, if you weren't playing close attention, maybe you didn't think they were too that big of a deal. Not, it mattered in the final score, no doubt about that. Yeah, those are those are really big moments, and you're right. I mean, you know you know the guys that can hook the line in, in the latter part of the game like that, a double absolutely scores the runner, et cetera. And so, yeah, you, you want to believe or know that the, the, the defender knows that, but I'm here to tell you, man, most of the time or almost all the time, they're looking to the dugout for uh, affirmation. And so it's it's good that Joe had done that. And I'm, you know, listen, guy, I, I, I hear so many wonderful things about him. I'm sure he was on top of it in advance. But that is the responsibility of the defensive coach on the infield. Make sure, because you can't assume anything. And, and uh, I'm not an assumptionist. And, and, and when you do, that's when you do get burnt. So great, great call on his part. It's absolutely correct. I saw the play and the ball was hit really, really well. And, and furthermore, like I say, Mancini, having not played in a bit, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, played it as though he was a catcher, put his body in front as much as he could, and that was great also. But those are the little things. You're right. Uh, there's all these little reminders. I like the uh, uh, the unspoken communication coming from the dugout to the field that's constant during the game. One of the things that I like to have uh, my, my, my team, my defensive team, learn in spring training, listen, uh, I want you to look in every before every pitch. Now, I know you know what you're doing out there, but if a coach just needs you for a second, uh, just look in. I'm not saying that we're doing or, or telling them something per pitch. That's not the, that's not the case. But if you're in the habit of always eyes to the dugout, that's Brian Butterfield. Eyes to the dugout. Butter always wanted his boys looking in prior to every pitch. And again, it's not like I'm going to tell you something all the time. But I don't want to have to try to get your attention. You start whistling and etc. And then things get kind of confused or, or, or rushed at the end. So 
eyes to the dugout, eyes on the coach, then get right back to your spot. It takes a nanosecond to get it done. And to me, that would be a well-trained infield group. I love it. And one more I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. This is first and third down a run in the eighth inning. This is the bet right before the Mancini play at first base off of Schwarber's bet. Brandon Marsh, who you had with the Angels in the box, they bring in Ryan Presley. Great move by Dusty Baker. Presley has pitched more than three outs to, to close the game just once all year. That was back in July. But, folks, it's game five of the World Series. He prepared his guy before the game to be ready for more than three outs. Presley had no problem with it. You know, the fire is hot. Go get your best arm. He brings in Presley. Marsh in the box here, and he strikes out. Well, Presley's good. It, you know, it's a tough at bat. I get it. Presley's got amazing breaking ball stuff. But first and third, one out. Man, it was rolling through my head, Joe. The Zim special. Yeah. But the, you got to get that run in. The difference in this series, the difference throughout the season when you play Houston is they get way more strikeouts from their staff than they are going to strike out in the box. The strikeout advantage for the Houston Astros is enormous, especially when we get into the bullpens. The ball has to be put in play in that situation somehow, some way. Get the ball into the field to try to tie the game. Marsh strikes out. Your number nine hitter. I get it. You know, I'm not blaming Brandon Marsh. Again, Presley's a really tough pitcher. But, man, it was rolling around my head for that Zim special, the safety squeeze. Well, that that's called spring training. When you're in spring training, you have to have guys understand uh, you have to be able to do certain things. Uh, there's times you're not going to be feeling good at the, uh, at the plate. Times you're going to be feeling overmatched at the plate. Sometimes, like you're suggesting, the ball has to be moved at the plate. You have to nurture all these different uh, components of your offense. And sometimes I don't think guys uh, apply enough mental um, servitude to it. You just got to really, really believe that this is important. And if you believe it's important, you'll learn how to do it. So for me, it's hard. I mean, uh, Marshy's not really good at that. He was not going to bring the ball with him very well. I'm sure uh, Robbie knew that. Um, he's, 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 he was a decent butter. He turned into a decent butter primarily to the left side, the drag side. Um, I mean, the push side, because he just doesn't. But it's been my take, believe it or not, um, that play, the, the safety squeeze, most of the time has worked well with right-handed hitters to push the ball to the right side. I've had very few lefties that could bring it with them and bring it with them well, which is where you want the ball to be bunted on the first base side. So uh, there was, again, I'm certain that Robbie knew that. And uh, is it Presley a little bit of a reverse split guy too? Um, I'm not even sure. I thought that he may have been. He might have been, but I'm telling you, he throws a ton of breaking pitches and they're – they're just yeah. as effective, if not more so, against lefties. But I, I get your point. About, that's, that's my point. You know, we look yeah, at these yeah. guys, we're not really sure as fans or viewers who can actually bunt, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a great point. And you can't assume that a lot of these guys, even guys hitting under 200, know how to put a bunt down. Well, it happened for us in the uh, in the playoffs against the Cardinals in St. Louis. Garcia was pitching. And we had, I think it was Kyle Hendricks that put a first safety squeeze down and, and the ball is thrown away. Then all of a sudden we have another first and third. And I can't remember. My, I don't remember who was hitting uh, after him at that point. It's probably the number. He could have been hitting eighth and then the ninth hitter. I'm not sure. But we came back with back-to-back safety squeezes. And all of a sudden that was the end of the game. I mean, it's just what it does to a team when you successfully execute that play. It really um, causes them to step back. Uh, a lot of times something good happens in the aftermath of that past the one run just because 
uh, teams get taken. But even though they know it might happen, even though they prepare for it, if it's executed properly, it definitely puts you on your heels. And, and again, this goes back to spring training. And you have to understand that this one moment occurred on November, what, 3rd yesterday? That's something that you really, and I do talk about it in spring training. This, you know, this may happen in June, July, or even in a playoff situation. But you have to apply enough mental energy into the play and believe that it's important in order to uh, ex- uh, achieve it and be good at it. So that's it. I mean, I, you're 100% right. Uh, it would have been in my head, but I would also know if my bunner, my hitter could have done it or not. And if he could not, I would have had to shy away from it also. Listen, you know, I know baseball is just a beautiful game. And there were more reasons on the field to remind us of that last night. And we'll talk about that next. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events... You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Book of Joe podcast. What an unbelievable catch by Chaz McCormick of the Astros. JT Riomuto hit what looked for sure to be probably a double with his speed, likely a triple, representing the tying run in the eighth inning of Game 5. And Chaz McCormick playing center field, one of the rare players, by the way, who bats right-handed and throws left-handed, made an unbelievable catch running toward the right center field gap up against the wall to really save the game for me. Chaz McCormick is a guy who undrafted at a high school. By the way, he went to B. Reed Henderson High about 30 miles outside of Philadelphia, rooting for the Phillies. And he gets no college, big-time college scholarship offers. He picks the Division II Millersville Marauders of the PSAC, Pennsylvania State Athletic Conference, 
baseball powerhouse, right? Yeah, baby. He gets drafted in 2017 by the Astros as a fourth-year senior in a round that no longer even exists, the 21st round. And here he is in the World Series playing virtually at home. He's got 20 friends and family in the stands, including his high school coaches. And he gets the his high school coaches' tickets to World Series games, and they said – that's awesome. Can't wait to see you there. But you know what? We're rooting for the Phillies. So he's getting tickets for guys who are rooting for the <laughs> Phillies. And he's like, I completely understand. I used to tell you every player on the roster back in the early 2000s with the Philadelphia Phillies. So he gets it. Local kid makes good, right? It's a great story. He's even got a food name named after him at Minute Maid Park, Joe. That's how popular he is. It's called the Mac and Chaz. That's solid, man. Brisket. Green onions, barbecue sauce <laughs> over macaroni and cheese. I just love these stories of these guys who come to, who come to make, they make it major league baseball and it seems like they come out of nowhere, but man, it reminds me of our book of Joe book, Joe, the struggle. It's all about the struggle. And you like to see struggles rewarded. Well, the, the thing about that catch too, Tom, for me is the high wall. And it's a chain link high wall. It's not a padded wall. And furthermore, he's going at it at an angle. Normally, when you get to a high wall and there's a fly ball hit, you want to get to the wall as much as early as you can. And then you play along the wall on a high wall and you never jump against the wall with your butt facing wall. You got to always get sideways so that you can get up in the air. Um, he timed that thing perfectly. The ball was, if it was like, what, another six inches higher, he could not have caught it. Everything he did was right in regards to technique and catching that ball. That's a tough play. I'm here to tell you that's a tough play. If it's a normal fence, fence a little bit more rounded, he could have gotten there and it's padded, and he could have uh, really uh, braced himself or gotten himself to a position even a little bit better. But when it's a high wall, a chain-link tie wall, on an angle like that, and his body and the ball and everything just intersected at that one particular point, and he had to be there. There's no adjusting at the end of that thing. It was that good. It was that good. That's That's a really... One of the more difficult plays an outfielder has to make, especially, like I said, with the high wall. So give the kid credit, man. That was outstanding. It, it really was. And um, uh, I was really impressed by that. And back back to the left-handed, right-handed, left-handed throw, right-handed hitter, two of my favorite players of all time, Ricky Henderson and Cleon Jones. Oh, yeah. Cleon Jones caught the last out of the 1969 World Series. That's right. Ricky Henderson, he might be a top Ricky. five all-time player so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And Sandy Koufax, by the way, there's a bunch of throw left or bat left, uh, throw left, bat right players in the Hall of Fame, but a bunch of them are pitchers. Randy Johnson, Sandy Koufax. So just remember that the next time you get that trivia question. <laughs> hey, and another another great story. If you look at the designated hitters in the game last night, you've got Bryce Harper, of course. Sports Illustrated cover boy at 16, two-time MVP, $330 million contract. And for the Houston Astros, David Hensley. David Hensley was drafted in the 26th round as a fourth-year college senior at a San Diego State who was signed by the Astros for $1,000. That's it. One grand. Come play baseball. Two years ago, during the COVID season, when there was no minor league baseball, the dude was moving boxes at a tile warehouse, tile and marble warehouse in San Diego. Moving around the boxes, he said, is how he got a little bit stronger, started to develop some pop. And here he is starting a game of the World Series with just 
34 plate appearances in the big leagues before the World Series. There's only been two players in the history of the game with fewer plate appearances when they got a World Series start, and that was back in 1920 and 1925. So good on these guys. I love these stories, Joe, about the struggle. Yeah, and uh, Hensley, uh, I could really more easily identify with him than I can with Bryce's uh, uh, glorious past. The fact that he went to San Diego State, I'm a big fan. I I worked with Coach Jim Dietz there for uh, a year up in Boulder, Colorado. That's where I got to play with Tony Gwynn. Uh, San Diego State has a great baseball history. Uh, Buddy Black, all these guys that went down there. I I love to hear San Diego State stories. I, I just I just like uh, we've talked about in the book. Also, I'm a big fan of the Southern California um, uh, school system regarding teaching baseball. The the coaches, the mentors that they've had, and it stretches pretty much I think from L.A. area all the way down. I only know this because I, as a California Angel, when I first signed, I went out there, and Larry Himes made me a scout and a minor league manager, and I was I was I was taught by all these scouts. That grew up there. Steve Gruel is a, is a perfect example. Uh, Cohen, uh, Luke Cohenauer uh, talked about Lloyd Christopher, and then the coaches in that area from Dave Snow at uh, Long Beach State, as an example. Augie Garrido, all these guys, uh, Nick Viscardo, all these guys that teach baseball down there. Uh, it's an incredible group. Uh, Herbold, Coach Herbold at Lakewood High School. It's a very conservative method of coaching baseball, which I love. Um, meaning fundamentals. They're very fundamentally sound in, in their teaching. And I was so, I'm so grateful that I was influenced by this group. And I talk about Bob Clear, Bob Lou, of course, and Marcel Lashman, all part of this structure down there. So I, I get it. I get it. And you're going to find a, a $1,000 pick out of uh, San Diego State that's capable of doing something like that. He was raised well back there by that group. I, he probably played for Tony, I think. I know Ty France did also. He did for one year. Yeah, and, yep. and it was probably influenced by him. So uh, good for him. I, I Again, I'm with you 100%. I love that. But then I could really resonates with me knowing a lot of that. I'm talking about the uh, mid to late 70s and early 80s when I was scouted. Even Kerwin Danley, the umpire. I, I scouted KD sure. when he played at San Diego State. So uh, it's great to hear that. He was an All-American and he was an All-American in that outfield and Tony Gwynn wasn't. Well, how about well, that? T- That's how good of a player Danley was. KD was a good line. I used to remind him of that before games that he was an umpire. I said, man, you could hit a line drive the right center as good as anybody. Uh, it was it was a fun place. I'm, I'm happy for the guy's success. I've been watching and uh, hopefully uh, he gets another opportunity to do something even greater in the next couple games. But Kudos to San Diego State. Yeah, and kudos to the scouts who put their eyes on these yeah. guys, the Chaz McCormicks, the David Hensleys of the world, and they said, you know what? There's something there. There's something there. It's, it's the backbone of the game that you know yourself, doing it yourself, Joe, how many hours yeah. they put in, how many miles they put in, but there's something about seeing something in a player and projecting, not the certainty, but even the possibility that one of these guys drafted 21st round, 26th round can turn into big leagues players. That's, that is uh, maybe a gift yeah. for sure, but it's definitely a skill. Well, I'll tell you, there's a point of that too. I just quickly is that the, the, the area scout that fought for him also is really matters. There's the area scouts will get a, a feel on somebody that they're watching and they're able then to take that to their scouting director. And it's an art not an argument. It's a strong discussion. Um, it, it's something that you really feel strongly about a particular player He's not part of the uh, conversation because when scouts sit in the stands, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of it centers around just a couple players. But if you're able to find that diamond in the rough, that one dude that nobody else is onto, and it really takes kind of the lone wolf to do lone wolf to do those kind of things, and then it takes a strong 
argument with the scouting director to get this guy up on your draft board. And hopefully that he may like him also or one of your cross checkers. It's, it is, it's great scouting. And I equally love to hear those kind of stories. Uh, and I have to ask you about a word that gets thrown out around way too much this time of year, playoff baseball momentum. Mm-hmm. I mean, folks, these games, you can see night to night, you don't know what you're getting. I mean, these, there's no narratives for people. <laughs> each game, each inning, each at bat is a story unto itself. So I got to ask you in your days managing in the postseason, Joe, were you even aware of things like this? And we keep asking, like, as the series goes back to Houston, everybody's going to ask, and they'll ask the players this too, which I think is so unfair. Who has the momentum? I mean, is it it's something? Does it matter? Did you feel anything like that in a postseason series? Well, Earl was right. It's really about the next day starting pitcher. That 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 that's the person that creates momentum. It has nothing to do with the day before. Two thousand two Angels. We were down three games to two, uh, going back to uh, Anaheim and win that one. Uh, with the uh, Chicago Cubs in 2016, we're down three to one in Chicago, uh, and it took uh, KB Chris Bryant hit a home run to left central against um, Bauer uh, Bauer to, to to tie us up, and then eventually go back uh, to Cleveland and have to win two games. And it's all about starting pitching. And it's about your group. I mean, it really is. It just I could even if I could recreate the the, the story about when Jay, Jason Hayward talked to the boys. During the rain delay, it's it's about your group. It's about the toughness in, within that group. It's about uh, not caving in. It's not giving up. It's um, it's putting out that positive vibe all the time. But yeah, momentum is about starting pitching. The other day, McCullers had a bad day, and all of a sudden the Phillies are hitting home runs all over the place, and uh, everybody considered the Phillies well, and that their hitting's back, and that it's over, and it's all they have to do is win two more games, and now the onus is on the other foot, starting pitching. Uh, Javier showed that, and then yesterday, Verlander in the bullpen showed that. So um, you can't, you can't. It's 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 a nice narrative. It, it, it creates talk show or um, radio um, talk talk radio kind of uh, banter, but it doesn't. It doesn't. The players don't feel that at all, not whatsoever. They're more concerned about who's pitching uh, the first game in Houston. How do I prep for him? How do I feel against this guy? Do I see him well? Or those are the kind of things that are valid and important. So all this other stuff, it's wonderful though. I, it's great to hear all this stuff. It creates conversation. It creates controversy. But otherwise, who's ever starting that day, uh, you always look at the at the at the bump on the mound there. And who's ever the better, whoever has the advantage in that particular position, normally has a better chance of winning the game. Well said. I like that. Hey, before we get out of here, Joe, our talk about Chaz McCormick, David Hensley, the struggle, the guys who make it, the scouts, got me thinking about rock and roll and scouting the guys who are the late round picks or the bands that would be late round picks. Okay. So if Bryce Harper is Bruce Springsteen, okay, I'm going for my David Hensley, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. So you got to give me a late round draft pick rock and roll band that you would recommend to your area scout to go check out. Well, I mean, does that be rock and roll or could I, Okay, no, okay. well, I mean, for me, you can go off. Yeah, the uh, you know, Lafayette, there's a couple. I mean, I uh, the uh, Southern uh, rock from that particular era, the mid 70s, I loved uh, like uh, Molly Hatchet, uh, really big fan of that particular group. Um, there was New Riders of the Purple Sage, loved that particular group. And then Pure Prairie League. I mean, these are like low round draft choices, I guess, as you're saying, maybe like a niche kind of a group. But anytime uh, I'm listening to the radio in the morning, if any of those groups come on, man, 
Dreams I'll Never See by Molly Hatch at the beginning of that song just stops me every time. So uh, I would say uh, Southern Rock, uh, uh, that that's really, and, and uh, what is the particular, The Outlaws. I was just um, going to say that. The, the Outlaws are so good. Uh, what's the song I'm trying to, Grass? Green Grass and High Tides. Green Grass forever. and High Tides, yeah. Great jam man, song. I mean, that's a good driving that song, That is it, that's correct. That's dark. You got to be dark. Uh, nothing around you. Nobody to hear to inter- interfere with your listening pleasure. Really, Delta V, really loud, and go and go for it. The Outlaws. I'm going to go Outlaws on this one. Now that we have talked it all the way through, Outlaws, um, and the Green Grass and High Tides. It's one of the best ever. Very cool. Yeah. Someday we're going to have to do our um, our music draft. Yeah. Right. Okay. That'll be fun. Cool, man. <laughs> Very cool. Hey, maybe it'll be next time. I don't know, but the next time we talk, uh, we might have a World Series champion, Houston Astros, going for the title. And I'm sure next time we'll talk about this, what it will mean for the Houston Astros vis-a-vis 2017, and let's face it, a tainted championship from 17. So we'll talk about that. And, of course, anything else that comes up in the meantime. Joe, always a pleasure. Look forward to the next time. What do you got? Thank you, brother. I got a very nice one from Terry Kennedy, a friend of mine, and his dad was Bob Kennedy, who was a friend of Ted Williams. But I think this is absolutely pertinent. Most slumps are like the common cold. They last two weeks no matter what you do. Love that one. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, And I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at First first Listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see... See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. 
Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.